1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we will be this morning as we continue marching on through the book of 1 Corinthians. Much of what Paul has been talking about and has been addressing since the start of this letter that we've been working through together is this idea of unity within the church. And so Paul is is walking through what that means. He's walking through what that doesn't mean. And we've hit a section starting last week that, that really seems like what Paul is doing, if we remember the letter, is, is there's this group of people called Chloe's household, which is probably family, all related to this person named Chloe. And they've given a report to Paul about this church in Corinth. And so it seems like what Paul is doing um, is is he's walking through this report from Chloe's people. And then in in, in verse 7, or in chapter 7, what we'll see is Paul shifts. And the Corinth church wrote him a letter with a bunch of questions. And he's going to begin answering those questions starting in verse 7. But first he wants to address all of these issues about what he has heard from this church. And so what we saw last week was the, the, the case of, of church discipline that, that Paul lays out. 1 Corinthians 5 is, is one of the huge chapters of Scripture uh, that talks about church discipline, and it's something that's often been understood, it's something that's often neglected, but it's something that's extremely biblical, and if we're to be a healthy church, we can't ignore chapters like that. But the problem that he lays out in in 1 Corinthians for this church, which plays into this text this morning, is that the church at Corinth had failed in their duty to be judiciaries, to be judges of the people, the members. So so what we need to see, and, and we'll read the text in just a second, is it's the church body, the congregation, that adds members and takes members away. Sometimes that's by request, sometimes that's not. But it's for the unity of the church. Church discipline is meant to be a warning. That you're not living like a believer. And if you're not living like a believer, likely is you're not a believer or you're a prodigal. And so church discipline is meant to be a warning saying, this judgment is happening now so that maybe when Jesus comes back, you'll be found innocent. You'll be saved that you'll repent and you'll turn back to the Lord. And so Paul quickly transitions to uh, chapter 6, verse 1, which says this. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint your judges, those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, or no thieves, 
greedy people, uh, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text of Scripture that you have before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we recognize and understand what you have laid out before us is that, God, we are meant to be judges, that we are meant to hold each other accountable. We're meant to look at your word and see what morally is right and what morally is wrong and hold one another up to those standards for your glory. Pray that your word would seep into us that you would give us encouragement where we need encouragement, that you would give us conviction where we need conviction, and ultimately, God, that we would grow in your gospel, that we would lean into you, we would trust you more, Jesus. Help us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read 1 through 8 again. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, you are unworthy to judge the trivial cases. Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? And if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judge those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. So Paul starts off this section which the, the title of, uh, of mine in my, my Bible is Lawsuits Among Believers, which seems kind of like an odd place for Paul to transition after 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We have this, this issue of church discipline, this case of this, this sin that's pretty heinous, and now Paul's switching over to like the legal system and lawsuits among believers. But he's piggybacking on the point that he made in chapter 5. It's that the church, this, this church particular in Corinth, has not done their role as judgment, as making sure that those who are within the church are living up to the standards that God has set. So we see in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. That's Jesus speaking. That verse has been misinterpreted and misapplied for an extremely long time because that doesn't negate 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1, which says, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to the court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Which is essentially saying, if you're going to judge, judge within the church, why are you involving the unrighteous who are outside of the church, the unbelievers? Those two verses are both in the scripture. Those two verses are both the inerrant, infallible word of God. We don't take one and put it over the other. We take them both and try to understand what God is saying. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is not giving an explicit statement to say, do not judge, period. What Jesus is saying in the context of that whole passage is do not have a pride in your judgment that makes you arrogant and look down at others like you're better than them. That's the section where he says, remove the plank out of your own eye before you get the speck out of your brother's. It's not that we're not supposed to morally set standards, morally define what is right and what is wrong. It's that we're not supposed to be arrogant and look at others and pretend like we're better than other people. 
In fact, what Jesus tells us here, or through what, what, what Paul tells us through, through the Holy Spirit here, is don't you know that the saints will judge the world? This is an odd verse, if we've never thought about it, that we will rule and that we will reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12 says this, If we endure, we will also reign with him, and if we deny him, he will deny us. Revelation 22.5 Night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22 is talking about the new heaven and the new earth, where there's no light because Jesus reigns forever and his glory is there. And then what does he say? They will reign forever and ever. So what the Lord is doing is if we're believers in Jesus Christ, in some form or in some capacity, you and I, when Christ comes back, we will be judges over the world. We will rule and reign with Christ. Paul's point here is if that's what the Lord has for us, but you can't solve the petty arguments you have within your local church, then there's an issue. See, the local court at at, at Corinth, or the courts at Corinth, was known as corrupt. They favored the wealthy. If you had finances, and if you had money, and you went to go sue somebody else, you were far more likely to win in the, the, the judicial branch at the court in Corinth. And so what Paul is saying is he's looking at this, and he's going, what are you doing? God has far more for you than just simply fighting over these trivial matters and giving a bad name to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you know that you will judge the world? He goes on, he says, don't you know that you will judge the angels? Now, this is a weird section, a weird kind of passage here. It can mean a couple different things, but it helps to understand what angels are in the Bible and what they are not. So so let me... I've said this before, but I just want to clarify. Angels, according to the scripture, are not your deceased relatives. They are a separate creation. You have the angels, you have demons, which are fallen angels, and then you have mankind, the image of God has been placed on us. We see in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he says this, For he has not subjected the, uh, to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. That is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. So, So in this creation, Angels rule with the Lord. We see that in Scripture throughout this time. They're not deceased relatives. They're the separate creation that God has given, that God has made. In the Bible, we see angels primarily as messengers. You see this in the book of Daniel. You see this at Christmas time when we talk about the angels coming to announce the coming of the Messiah. And so what Paul is telling us is this idea here is that we will judge the angels, and it can mean two different things. The word judge there can mean ruler reign. Meaning that when Christ comes back, we will rule the angels. We will have some type of there. Or it could mean that we judge the fallen angels. Most likely it means rule and reign. But the main point, even if we're vague on that, the main point that Paul is saying is if, don't you know, we judge the world when Christ comes back, that that's set on believers. Don't you know that we'll judge the angels when Christ comes back, but you can't settle these trivial disputes disputes within the church? 
That you're turning to unbelievers to help solve believers' problems? That's what Paul's saying. This church was so proud of how wise they were. Do you remember in in, in chapter 4, verse verse 10, when Paul is being sarcastic with the church? He says this, We are fools for Christ, talking about the apostles, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. It's Paul being uh, sarcastic with this church, saying, Oh, you're so wise. Look how smart you guys are. He gives a whole lot talking about spiritual wisdom, all the way up to verse uh, to chapter 4. And it's Paul looking at them saying, you have all of this wisdom that you claim to have, but you can't find one person within your church who can settle these arbitrary disputes with one another. You claim to be so wise that you're having to turn to unbelievers to figure it out for you. See, what irks Paul so much, what hurts Paul so much, is it's been disunity that's been the issue with this church. And a part of the disunity is people who are sitting on pews with each other are suing one another in the local court. We're not told why, but we're told that it's arbitrary. And that it's brother against brother. I like sports. But I like like some of the stories behind sports. I don't know if you know this. Uh, the, the New Orleans Pelicans is a, a basketball team. And the Saints, which is an ironic name for the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, their owner, they had an owner. And, and he had owned the team forever. And what a lot of sports teams do is that's what they'll, their inheritance, that they'll pass down those teams to their kids. And so the, the New Orleans Saints and the New Orleans uh, Pelicans owners, the same guy, and he was going to pass the team down to his kids. But then he, he remarried, and he married a lady who was about his kid's age, if you understand what I'm saying. And his kids threw a fit because she was in the will. This is all true. You could go Google it. It's, it's fascinating for me. And so what the owner did was he wrote his kids out of the will. He said, fine, if you're going to argue about this, I'll just give the Saints and the Pelicans, these multi-billion dollar teams now, to my newly married wife instead of my children. Father against his kids. I'm a Broncos fan. Uh, I root for the Broncos because they're the team that's at the highest altitude, which means they're closest to the Lord. And... Not to make a theological point, but the Cowboys Stadium is the hottest in the NFL, and that says something, too. (laughs) Years ago, the Broncos owner got dementia, and so he created this group of people uh, that were going to run the team until one of his grandkids could come and take over the team. And then that was going to be their inheritance that was going to carry it out. And so there was one clear-cut grandchild that was going to take over the Denver Broncos team. It It was her team. She was just working through the steps that that her grandfather had set up. And so when it finally comes to that point, the team's about to announce it, the other brother sues the family, saying it shouldn't be that grandchild, it should be my children. And they go to this big old lawsuit. And so what ends up happening is they just say, you know what, we'll just let the Broncos go open up for bid. So now the Broncos sold last year to Walmart. It's out of the family. We see legal lawsuits like that often. 
You can think of legal dramas that you know on TV or, or uh, you can listen to whatever podcast. The topic. I mean, these are hot topics that take place within America where we understand that sometimes these legal messes get sticky and they'll break families apart. I know of churches that have split because they've had lawsuits that have taken place with brothers and sisters in Christ who, who get trapped on these secondary issues so much so that they elevate them to primary issues and then the church suffers because of disunity. That's what Paul's getting at. In fact, what Paul says is that you're even suing one another means you've already lost. You can win the lawsuit and lose. He goes on and he says something that pushes against what what you and I think because we're Americans, but most importantly, we're Texans. He said, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. Paul's not saying that it's not right. He's not saying that you don't have a case. What he's saying is if your brothers and sisters in these are arbitrary measures, you look most like Christ when you are wronged. You look most like Christ when you are cheated. It's our Savior, God, whose ultimate right in life is to rule and reign because he's God in the flesh who created everything that is, yet God in the flesh sets aside his rights and he comes down to earth to live the life that you and I can't live and to die the death that you and I do deserve so that you and I might have our sins atoned for and that we can be with God. And if Christ can set aside those rights, then if we're his followers, if we're his believers, if we believe in Jesus and we believe in the gospel, how much more should you and I be able to be cheated for the glory of God? Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says this. Do not repay evil for evil. Give careful thought to what is, dis- uh, what is honorable in everyone's eyes. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from him the one who wants to borrow from you. What Jesus is saying is our, our rights are important if we're, if we're human beings. That God has given us as, as image bearers. We're the only creation that has the image of God on us. That means that we're all valuable according to the Lord. That we have worth. That we have dignity. It doesn't matter if we're male or female. It doesn't matter what ethnicity or race we are. For human beings, we have value and we have worth intrinsic because God has given it to us. But we can set aside. We can set aside things like feeling like we have to be justified right now if it means that there might be unity within the church, if it, might mean, if it means that the gospel might be proclaimed, if it means that Jesus doesn't get a bad rap. Now, here's what this doesn't do, because in the SBC here lately, this needs to be stated, and even with churches uh, around, this text does not cover up uh, abuses. This text does not justify churches who try to cover up things that have taken place. 
this last week, the SBC had to replace. I know you guys stay, pay a lot of attention to the SBC and, and all of the things going on there, so you've probably already heard this. There's an executive committee for the Southern Baptist Convention. It was, it's what functions as the convention while the, the, the committee, uh, the convention's not gathering. And within that committee, there's a chair, and that chairperson is the CEO of the SBC in essence. It was found out this week the interim CEO who was being considered for the real CEO had forged his academic credentials. He's not the CEO of the SBC anymore, the executive committee. Two, three years ago now, the Houston Chronicle published all sorts of articles about how the SBC had hid sexual abusers and just physical abusers within the clergy and within church members. This text does not justify that. And what this text is saying is it says you deal with these problems, you deal with these issues. It's the small secondary ones that you can settle within the church, but if there's corruption, if there's abuse, if there's things going on, that needs to be exposed for the glory of God. That's where what Paul said last week with church discipline would come in, to give a warning to that person, to say you're not acting like a believer at best. You might be an unbeliever parading around as a believer and need to repent and to turn to Jesus before you're lost for an eternity. Because all of what Paul is saying is incompatible with the gospel. Look at verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy, uh, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul starts this off, right? it, it shifts, it causes him to think of something else, which is just phenomenal. He says, don't you know, this is Paul's way of saying, what I'm about to say to you should not be a surprise. This should be within your eyes, you should understand what I'm about to say. And what he says is that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. We miss this in the English because the word unrighteous is the same exact word for cheated. So it's Paul with the same idea. You'd rather cheat than be cheated, but the cheated, those who cheat, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot engage in evil and expect to inherit this kingdom of God. And then Paul gives one of his famous vice lists. And in some of the letters Paul write, he lists these sins like this. They're called his vice lists. And in all of them, they're not exactly identical to one another which shows us some things. One, it shows us that the list of sins is, is things that we can take together, but it's not an exhaustive list of everything that we can think of. And second, it's Paul saying this vice list that he's giving applies specifically to the church at Corinth. These are the things that they're struggling with, and we can really break the list down into two sections. There's sexual sins, which we will cover, cover largely next week. So don't, don't panic. We're going to cover those next week. So we're going to kind of gloss over them now, cover them next week. Second, the list of sins involves coveting and stealing. So what Paul says is, no, sexually immoral, it's a broad term for any form of sex outside of marriage, and a marriage is between a husband and a wife only. The second sin he lists is idolaters, which Paul sees as the foundational sin. All sin, Paul argues in Romans, comes from this idea of worshiping something or someone besides God, idolatry. Sometimes what we worship is ourselves. 
sometimes what we worship may be something else. But idolatry is just as prominent now as it was when they were making bronze statues. It's worshiping anything, good or bad, besides God. Pastor, theologian uh, Tim Keller used to say, uh, idols are very rarely bad things that we make good. They're good things that we make God. Third, he says, adulterers. This is those who are unfaithful to their their marital vows. Males who have sex with with males. This is self-explanatory, yet it's attacked. This is a that. Well, we will cover that one in depth next week because there's a certain community of people that will argue that verse. They'll say that it's a mistranslation. It's not. You have thieves, which means those who steal secretly. You have the greedy, probably the ones suing one another within the church. You have the, the drunkard. It's, it's not a sin to drink alcohol. The Bible doesn't say that. What the Bible does say is it's a sin to get drunk, and it's a sin to be controlled by alcohol. So if you have to have a glass of wine every night, I would say that means you're controlled by alcohol, and you need to be careful and come back to the Lord. You have to have a beer. If you have to have whatever it is, then that would be controlled by it. The verbally abusive people. Those who berate, those who lie. The swindlers. All right, so you have the thieves. Those are those who steal secretly. The swindlers are those who steal more forcefully. So all stealing, all sides. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which is another way of saying our unbelievers. So here's what that list should do. One, we should not be surprised by anything that's on that list. It makes sense. Second, what we should be surprised by are some of the sins that you and I might think are terrible, horrific sins are listed with sins that you and I might be more comfortable letting slide and letting pass by. That adultery and uh, greedy are on the same list as telling, isn't it? That all sin is rebellion against God, whether it's something that we're comfortable with or not. And the third thing we should see from this list is that God saves those kinds of sinners. Paul says, some of you used to be like this. You were actively engaging in those acts. Your hearts were the hearts of people who rebelled against God. But you were washed, which is probably a reference to baptism, that you were baptized. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's a symbol. It's symbolic of what's already happened in our lives, that you've been washed clean, that you've been made pure by God. You were washed and you were sanctified. Sanctified is the ongoing process of being made holy. So at the moment we're saved, we're justified. And then the rest of our lives, we're sanctified, that God grows us as we go about our lives, that things come into play or we read the Bible and God continues to make us more and more holy if we're growing in him. That's sanctification. And you are justified. This is a declaration. This is a moment. This is the stamp that goes on the piece of paper that says this person is declared righteous because of the the virtue of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not by their own works, but by the work of Christ. They're considered justified in God's eyes. 
that list of sinful people, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the males who have sex with males, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the verbally abusive, the swindlers, those people are the ones that were washed, that were saved. Those people are the ones that are sanctified and are now growing in the Lord in purification. Those are the ones that were declared justified by God. You know who's not on that list? The perfect. Those who have their lives together. Those who don't struggle with any sins aren't on that list. Because those people don't exist. God saves sinners. Always. And we see this tagline that Paul adds at the end that we're, we could be really quick to brush by, but it gives us this theological truth that we must hold on to. That we are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That we see throughout Scripture, salvation is Father-planned, Son-accomplished, and Spirit-applied in our lives. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are a triune God. One God in three persons. That language is important. Not personalities. Not three modes. One God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is completely God. The Son is completely God. The Spirit is completely God. Salvation is Father planned, Son accomplished, and Spirit applied in our lives. So that then when we're saved, God takes all of those sinful people, those from the list and those in the room, and he counts us as righteous. The gospel changes who you are on the inside. It changes your hearts. It takes spiritually dead people and makes us alive. And so what that tells us is that theology leads us to ethics and not the other way around. That our study of God, that our study of the Bible teaches us what is right and what is wrong. And that we are called to have this steadfast love for one another in the midst as we try to suck. Like we're, we're, we're saints and we're sinful all at the same, same time. So we're, we're sorting through all of these things together. But in the midst of all of those sorting, sometimes we're going to be more frustrated with each other and sometimes we'll be getting along better. But in the midst of all of that, if we have this steadfast love, this never leaving love, this never changing love for one another, we want to grow one another in Christ. And we hope that others will help us to grow in Christ is that we don't leave, we stay. That we love even when we don't like all the time. Paul's telling us is that the church is a family. Did you know that you, your biological kin are not promised to be with you in eternity? But those who are fellow believers in the church, in, in theory, right, we're, we're not going to get this judgment right all the time. We can't see the hearts of people those who are fellow believers in the church are claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, which means we will spend an eternity with each other, too. I'm sure we'll have like an Ira Baptist church room up in heaven. That's what this means, is if we're family, if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, it means, one, sometimes brothers and sisters fight. 
and sometimes the fighting gets dirty, right? Nobody else's siblings that way, just mine? But it doesn't change our relationship. We work through those things. Sometimes that means we surrender our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters, just like Christ did for us on the cross. Lastly, what this passage shows us is that you cannot give yourself over to evil and expect to inherit the kingdom of God. Church discipline, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, is the warning. It's Paul's loving way of saying you would rather have church discipline, you'd rather have the church issue this this judgment than Christ issue this judgment when you die or when he comes again. That true believers are learning to live out this new heart, this new life that we have. If God takes our dead spirituality, if we're spiritually dead and he makes us alive, then our lives as Christians is about living out that life that God has given us in the midst of how we walk about it. If we've been washed and we've been sanctified and we've been justified and we saw what the past people we are. And you know your past, I know my past. And we can look at these lists of vices, we can look at these lists of sinful people. That's not going to be an immediate shift. But as the Lord grows us, people should be able to say, you're different now than what you used to be. You used to be a thief, but now you're not. What is going on? That's where unbelievers see the gospel. That's where Christ is proclaimed. Is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to take the worst of us. Those who are taking brother and sister to court to get wealthy sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the males who sleep with males, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the verbally abusive, the swindlers, on and on and on we could go with that list. That God takes those people and he makes them sons and daughters. Not just serpents, sons and daughters. And as a son and daughter of the king, you inherit the kingdom of God. The gospel tells us what's right and what's wrong, and we live it out. That the gospel makes us a family, whether you like it or not. And that the gospel changes how we live. Now, there may be times in our lives when we enter into prodigal seasons where we live out in evil ways. It doesn't mean we're an unbeliever. It just means we're running from the Lord in those moments. And the call for that is to turn back and come to the Lord. The story of the prodigal son is a beautiful story because when the son finally comes back, what's the father doing? Do you know? Watching the horizon, waiting. And he hugs the son who ran off. It's a deep hug. And he throws a party for the son who ran off. And he doesn't bring the son back as a servant. He brings him back as a son. So if that's you, if you're in a prodigal season of your life, my plea to you would be to turn back to the Lord and come home not too far gone, that God's not too ashamed of you, that he can take your heart and he can fix it. That if you're an unbeliever and you're struggling with those things and you're trying to mask it, because we do that in Texas and we do that in Scurry County and Bad, where it's, it means something to do right, and so we will white-knuckle behavior as best as we can, but at the end of the day, if your external actions don't match the internal heart that you have, at best you'll have some kind of explosion later on because you're not living out the gospel. You don't know the truth of Jesus. My plea to you would be to repent and to turn to Jesus this morning.
He can give you a new heart. And if you're a believer and you're not in either of those camps, and, and, and praise the Lord, we shouldn't be in, in either. Recognize that God has placed you here for a purpose. That you're to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ and to help them grow and to have them help you grow too. And that God has placed you in the Ira community for a purpose and for a reason. That Ira needs the gospel desperately bad. And God has equipped you with the skills and the knowledge to do so. Go share the gospel with your neighbors in word and in action. Love one another deeply. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this text of scripture that we can walk through for 1 Corinthians.